This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp, Nexo.io, and KuCoin. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hi, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Yesterday, there was yet another cryptocurrency-themed hearing on Capitol Hill, this time in front of the House Financial Services Committee. It was a familiar setup, a panel of representatives grilling a hand-selected group of representatives from the industry. We've seen a bunch of these things going right back to some seminal hearings in 2013, which set the tone for regulating Bitcoin. But somehow, this one felt different. Aside from a few hostile congressmen, Brad Sherman of California being the exemplar, there seemed to be a much more openness position to the dialogue and understanding and just getting to know what this is all about. For the most part, the crypto community's assessment was positive and it reflected this new sense of openness. Still, there are countless contentious issues that arose. Regulation remains a major issue for this space. So to unpack it all, we've invited Coindesk's Managing Editor of Global Policy and Regulation, Nicholas Day, to join us. But first, hi, Sheila. What did you make of yesterday's meeting? Well, I'm always hesitant to call anything you know, a turning point because that seems a little dramatic. And as we know, uh, the attitudes tend to go back and forth depending on what's really hitting the news cycle at any given moment. Uh, but I will certainly say that, the, to your point, this had a very different tone than previous hearings. And I would include, actually, hearings on big tech as well. Uh, we've had a number of tech-related hearings over the course of the past year, let's say. This was a pretty unusual tenor and tone of the questions. I also think it was fascinating to see who was actually asked to testify this time, like who actually was pulled up in front of this group uh, of the House Financial Services Committee to provide uh, the kind of detail they were looking for. So you had a couple of CEOs, well, all CEOs, of course, but you had people that really understood the inner workings of the company from a, a technical perspective, from a kind of regulatory perspective as well. And I think we got into more of those details this time than we kind of had in the past either. So overall, I I think it's safe to say it was a good day for crypto. And we should all be looking ahead, I think, with some optimism as to what may follow. Cool. Well, uh, we've got just the right person to tell us what to be looking forward to going ahead. Nobody knows, I think, really, certainly from the journalism side, much more than Nick Day on what is going on. So Nick, what were your major takeaways from yesterday's hearings? Hey. Yeah, it definitely seemed like a very substantive hearing. You know, as Sheila just said, a lot of these tend to be kind of, you know, Congress taking shots at individuals that they believe to have violated the trust or, you know, business principles or messed up in some way, shape or form. And we've seen that even during past crypto hearings, in particular with the Libra announcement back when that was a thing that Congress was looking into deeply. But yesterday's hearing really completely different tone. All the questions were substantive. Even when the questions were kind of getting into specific concerns, they were still legitimate concerns. There were concerns about the environment. There were concerns about fees imposed on users. A lot of the questions were also just about how a specific type of policy might be implemented, whether a specific type of model, such as bank charters, 
made sense or is there a better alternative? Is there a specific technical concern within, you know, for example, stablecoin issuance? A lot of these questions were very much focused on trying to elicit genuine answers, substantive answers, rather than just get an emotional response. The other thing I noticed, Nick, was that uh, this it was less partisan than previous hearings. Again, also just on technology writ large. Was that your sense too? Yeah, absolutely. In past hearings, you know, we've seen very occasionally we've seen, you know, one party say, okay, we're just going to be very pro-regulation. And another party say, we're going to be very pro-innovation and, you know, never shall the two meet. Yesterday, I think members of both parties said, well, you know, we think that this is cool technology. We think that these are cool use cases. Here are some concerns we have about zero protection, about financial stability, about, you know, making sure that your technology platform or your finance platform doesn't fail at the wrong moment and harm people. And we're trying to talk to you about how to implement rules and regulations around this so that we don't harm the innovation while still protecting consumers. And that was, I think, a trend throughout most of the hearing from almost every member who spoke. Just picking up on what Sheila said at the outset about how this differentiated from the sort of hearings we've seen on big tech as well. I thought it was quite striking, Maxine Waters, the, the chair of the committee, you know, her opening the whole thing with a rather kind of open, okay, we're here to learn type of perspective on things. In stark contrast to the extremely hard position she took on Facebook's Libra, as it was then called, what's going on there? And is there any sort of sign, I suppose, that there's an openness to this industry being one that is driven by startups and sort of newcomers rather than it being owned by, you know, big, bad Facebook, I suppose. Yeah, I think there's really two things happening here. One, you know, as you pointed out, Facebook has this kind of unique position in Congress right now where I don't think there's anyone who really likes Facebook or thinks that they're doing a good job. And part of that is because of the sheer number of data breaches and privacy breaches and you know, concerns like the Cambridge Analytica scandal that have, you know, proliferated over the past couple of years. And part of that is just, you know, some pretty real concerns and some imagined concerns about content moderation and how to address questions about the best way to approach this. So Facebook in and of itself is kind of in this really negative position. They could announce that they completely solved world hunger. And I think they'd still be concerns and questions about it. But separately from that, the digital asset sector definitely, I think, is getting a, a proper look. And even some of the companies that are involved, Coinbase, for example, is one of the companies that was present yesterday. It's as close as we can get to an, uh, you know, a full-blown incumbent enterprise-level entity in this sector. And while there were some questions about fees and consumer protection, it was still treated the same as many of the other startups. So yeah, I think that the digital asset sector in and of itself is being looked at with, if not fresh eyes, at least, you know, very neutralized, very questioning eyes rather than, hey, are you trying to destabilize the world financial system? Do you get a sense, Nick, and I, I ask this not in a leading way, like genuinely, because like, this is something that just occurred to me. Certainly, we've talked a lot on the show about the positioning of the U.S. versus other jurisdictions. So is there a response or reaction to China or to the kind of the growth of fintech? ASEAN, um, is there awareness of things like remittances and the amount of money that's kind of flowing from the U.S. to other countries? And is any of that playing in here? But it was interesting kind of who was chosen and who was not, right? So you did have a slate of people who represented, I think, companies that are identified as American, I would say. I think that's a reasonable thing to say. Uh, more than I'd say global companies, maybe. And I, that might be an assessment that those individuals disagree with. But I do think that those were kind of seen as Americans testifying about really American HQ companies. So that was really interesting. And I, I didn't get a sense that they were thinking about this 
globally at all. Uh, the tenor of the hearings to me seemed very focused on the U.S., not the U.S. versus some other country, which is interesting, right? Because I think given all the kind of storm and drawing we've had about China and, you know, digital dollar versus digital yuan and all of that, didn't hear a lot of that come up. Was that your take as well? Yeah, I actually don't think I heard the digital yuan come up at all. Yeah. And yeah, there were definitely questions about, you know, is there concern about companies fleeing the U.S. or setting up shop elsewhere? But you're right. It was really focused on the U.S.'s role within its own borders and not how exactly the U.S. is going to compete with, uh, you know, central bank digital currencies from different countries or jurisdictions from different countries. It was just, you know, can we build this here and what do we need? It seemed to me that reflected a, maybe a newer enhanced understanding of the differences in digital currencies, right? Because it was not a CBDC hearing. And I think that we had earlier hearings on this topic, there was a bit of a aligning of the concept of digital currency, digital dollar versus stablecoin versus crypto and this kind of thing. And here, I think it seemed to me, at least based on the questions asked, that the members really did have a pretty good handle on the differences among these types of offerings uh, and what they were. And I think we saw that with Circle and USDC, for example, there was some sort of questions about that versus some, maybe we'll call them crypto, you know, kind of pure, if you will, crypto kinds of concepts here as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Michael, if you noticed that too, and if you have any thoughts on that. No, again, yet another sign that people are starting to do their homework, right? I think there's been a lot of aid to these lawmakers who have put in a, a bunch of work over the yeah. last year yeah. or so and brought them up to speed. They're getting some of that nuance. The big issue here though, Nick, is like, again, what is the framework for regulating stable coins going to look like? And I think to Sheila's point, understanding how they fit within what the priorities are for the United States, whether it's a CBDC or it's something more along the lines of a privately run model is vital to how that all shakes out. Did you get any sense from the hearing, at least from the tone of the question, the type of questions, where lawmakers are leaning at this stage with regards to, you know, will stable coins require bank charters or not? And all those sort of finer details that seem so important to the sector right now. Yeah. And this is where I think the crypto industry probably can, if not breathe a sigh of relief, at least take a little bit of comfort. There were questions about this, but a lot of the questions were along the lines of, does the president's working group for financial markets recommendation that stablecoin issuers be treated as banks make sense? Or is there a, another model that would make more sense? Lawmakers were asking Circle CEO Jeremy Allaire and Paxos CEO Charles Casarilla, do you agree with the idea that there should be mandatory reporting requirements? Should there be other types of tools or other types of requirements that would make more sense? So there really was a genuine effort, it seemed, to get input from stablecoin issuers and from crypto exchanges and these parties to say, you know, here's how we think this could work in practice. Here's what is possible for us. Brian Brooks, the former acting controller, former US CEO and current Fury CEO, said that it doesn't make sense to require bank charter-like regulations without also granting bank charters. So, you know, the question could become, uh, should there be a path to getting these charters or how to, you know, what's the another way to approach it? So a lot of the questions about stablecoins were along those lines. There were a couple of questions about protections and consumer protections again, but you know, as far as the regulatory regime goes, it does seem like lawmakers really want not just industry input on what they would like to see, but more specifically, what is possible and what would need to happen for them to be able to actually do this. What would they need to comply? Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. 
As a fully remote team, working for QuantStamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. Nexo is a trusted, easy-to-use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 12% annual interest that is paid out daily. Nexo supports all major assets on the market and even allows you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your holdings without selling them. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. It's altcoin season, and if you aren't looking for crypto gems on KuCoin, you're doing it wrong. Known as the People's Exchange, KuCoin is the home of altcoins, with over 400 tradable coins. Sign up today to find the next crypto gem in DeFi, GameFi, NFT, and Metaverse. Join KuCoin with 8 million global investors and claim your $500 welcome bonus at KuCoin.com. That's K-U-C-O-I-N dot com. One thing I've been thinking about to go back to kind of this global concept is imagining what regulators in other parts of the world are taking away from this particular hearing. Because, of course, you know, there's a lot of audience for this stuff. And in the past, there's been this kind of healthy debate, I think, within the crypto community. Like, is everyone going to follow what the U.S. does? So if the U.S. were to ban something, is that going to like lead to a rash of bans you know, around the world? And I've been a little bit skeptical about that. I've actually felt like in some cases, there are some jurisdictions that actually would see an opportunity if the U.S. were to do something as you know, outrageous, in my view, as completely stifle this innovation. I think others would step in and say, here's a chance for us to build a gigantic part of the digital economy and be very welcoming uh, to some of these builders and others. But as the tenor shifts, I think, a little bit to... I'm not going to say it's like positive, but certainly open. I think we can agree that it's definitely an open, a more open-minded tone than I think we've seen from some of these members in the past. My views on that kind of shift as well. Like I do think if the U.S. is demonstrating a rigorous process and comes up with a regulatory regime that, you know, is based on this kind of open inquiry, you know, and is more pro-innovation, I think we actually will see a lot of pickup by other jurisdictions from this. And I liken this a little bit, Michael, we had this little uh, episode at one point on charity laws, the concept of 501c3, which many countries have just literally copied. They call it something else, but it's the exact mm-hmm. same language. And I do think we could see that happening here if we ultimately get to that point. But I'm curious, Nick, you know, what your take is. Do you think there's going to be competition in the regulatory market, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, or do you think that there's going to be a little bit of a copycat kind of vibe going on? I think right now it's going to be kind of, it's going to be patchwork for a little bit, for sure. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about the international realm, a lot of the questions about regulations come down to a lot of the concerns about financial crime. So ransomware attacks, for example, is a big one that we've been talking about for most of this year. And there is a ongoing push to find a way to harmonize regulations and laws around ransomware payments, in particular with crypto, but also in non-crypto. But it's kind of, you know, it's being put into this broader conversation about can countries collectively ban these payments or collectively find a way to disincentivize these payments? And, you know, I think whatever the U.S. does with crypto, if there is any copying, it's going to be focused a lot on, you know, the protection and crime aspect rather than 
the encouraging innovation. I think the encouraging innovation side of these laws might just happen organically as each country kinds of grapples with it. We're seeing that already with places like South Korea and Japan, where they are implementing their own laws that are either requiring licenses to be granted or otherwise forcing some kind of registration regime. And, you know, we're starting to see this pop up a little bit in a couple other jurisdictions. You know, Nick, I think this is the, the biggest challenge. It always has been in some respects that the industry faces, right? Is that the conversation around the, the real advantages for the average person here run up against the existing regulatory regime around money laundering, around crime, right? I mean, and it was interesting yesterday, I think you noted that the prepared remarks from quite a number of the industry representatives led straight into financial conclusion as a use case, right? We're going to get more and more of the poor having access because they can more easily access bank accounts and so forth. The flip side of that in some respects, right? not everything, but in some respects is because of the fact that they don't need to comply with this sort of rigorous, heavy financial regulatory framework that has been built around you know, the Bank Secrecy Act and FinCEN and then sort of the FATF and all these huge surveillance mechanisms that we have spent oodles of time on this program talking about as a barrier to inclusion. So it to me is where the rubber meets the road in many respects. I wonder whether the smartest thing to do is to step up and say, yay, financial inclusion, we can fix this because it sounds hollow if it doesn't deliver without really just getting into the heart of do we need KYC regimes to be absolutely pervasive and surveilling as they are? Did that conversation get to that level of sophistication or was it still this bromides of, hey, financial inclusion? And no, we're not going to commit any crimes, but no one really <laughs> actually acknowledging the inherent conflict in that position. So interestingly, that actually did not come up. The arguments made stablecoin issuers don't have minimum account maintenance requirements or maintenance fees, uh, which banks might have. So in my eye, I'm actually not sure that that's like a crypto specific thing. It seems to me that if there was a bank that was willing to allow a minimum balance of zero or waive you know, maintenance fees, they could probably you know make that exact same argument and find success. So I'm not sure that that is a crypto specific thing, but you're right. That is a argument that pervaded a lot of the hearing is crypto companies saying we can aid in financial inclusion by XYZ. But no, they did not get that deep into the KYC requirements or issues of that nature. Let me put it another way. Are lawmakers themselves buying the argument, right? Did you feel as if there was an acceptance of this idea that these guys did have a solution for financial inclusion, which is obviously targeted at the progressives who you know, have a, a very vocal voice within the House? I honestly don't think so. You know, especially, I don't think the progressives bought that argument and most of them didn't even ask about it. The lawmakers who did ask, they asked about it and you know, they were kind of center, center right level type of you know, politicians, but no one came out there and said, you know, I think this is a perfect solution or I think this makes a lot of sense. They just said, how would this work and moved on. To the folks who are making this argument, I think they probably have some more work to do and probably have to be able to demonstrate how they can do it in practice because at this point, it has been a couple of years since a lot of these projects launched. And at some point, lawmakers will want to see results or at least proof of an ability to get those results. Yeah, well, I, I certainly think that they're going to want to see an evidence base if it's something as serious as you know, raising standards of living or making things easier for those who are cut out of the system or excluded in some other way. Uh, and I personally think that that's reasonable. <laughs> you know, uh, we don't want to be building and, and doubling down on solutions that aren't actually addressing real problems or aren't actually working. That being said, I think there are such solutions. I think it's interesting. This is where the kind of global thing comes into play because a lot of the solutions that I think are in production are not necessarily in the United States. 
And so an interesting question is going to be whether those are compelling arguments. Like you could talk about, you know, when we had an episode on Axie in the Philippines, right? You could talk about play to earn models, you talk about all kinds of things that I think are interesting, but they aren't necessarily, again, you know, catching fire here in the US the way they are in other parts of the world. And so a lot of the examples I think that some of these folks I suspect would have raised would not take place within the U.S. country borders. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how that plays out over the course of time, because as we kind of see an expansion uh, potentially of that particular argument aimed, I would say, at progressives who are uh, needing to be brought along, certainly during this administration and during this particular Congress. So I'm curious, Nick, when it comes to policy, zoom way out. Uh, the purpose of these hearings, right? So we all kind of infer, and, and many of us have conversations behind the scenes with aides or others. This was clearly a, a hearing focused on education, asking some real questions, you know, really trying to dive into substance uh, versus some hearings that I think are easy to distinguish, which are really more about creating talking points or maybe more political in nature. Uh, and so, you know, what do you think happens now? What's your crystal ball? I think that this is in and of itself not going to directly lead to legislation. We're not going to see a proposal next week that's based purely on this hearing, but this does seem like a first step almost in getting to that point where at some point next year, I imagine we're going to have plenty more hearings and a lot of them are going to be like yesterday's where they're focused on education. They're going to be focused on broad issues. There could be some that are very narrowly tailored to addressing stable coins or custody or specific issues that are within this crypto niche that lawmakers have to grapple with. But at some point next year, we'll probably start seeing legislation proposed that addresses a lot of these questions and you know, either answers the crypto industry's questions about how they can operate without falling afoul of the SEC or the CFTC. And some of them are just going to be focused on you know, protecting users and making sure that customers can for example, exit out of their crypto positions during moments of peak volatility or you know, avoid paying high fees on transactions. I don't have a sense of what that timeline looks like yet. It's probably going to be quite a while. And we also have the midterm elections coming up next year. So that's going to slow things down, I imagine, you know, once that kicks off in full by the end of spring, early summer. So you know, either we have stuff happening in the first half of the year or we have to wait a little bit and see what happens. There were some colorful moments yesterday as well. well. First of all, I was, again, the quality of the questions, that was one of the things that was striking. I do think that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's question exposed her as somebody who's really done her homework. I mean, yeah. she, she asked a question about how important stable coins are to the plumbing of the exchanges and the, the functioning of, of how payments are made between and around exchanges, which is a, a, quite a deep understanding of the function of these things. Everybody's favorite crypto hater, though, Brad Sherman, came out with some colorful references. Uh, he was talking about hamster coins and mongoose coins, and there's been some upshot of that, right? Yeah, he made a joke about how the number one threat to crypto is crypto. And he was talking about examples of cryptocurrencies that are designed to try and become the next Bitcoin, or at least the next you know, popular payment tool use case uh, for whatever. And he made a joke about how you know Doge could be di uh, displaced by Hamster Coin and Kroba Coin, and then he made a joke about Mongoose Coin that could compete with Crypto Coin, and most of those, I think, actually might have existed. Mongoose Coin did not. Right. <laughs> Good chance that something like that is going to exist. Yes. <laughs> Chances are. <laughs> Twenty-four hours ago, there was no such thing as Mongoose Coin. Right. Now there are. There's at least one and probably of quite a few course. Mongoose coins out there. People are putting money into this as a joke. There's like one Twitter account that was like, oh yeah, like this is inspired by lawmakers, which is uh, one way to phrase it, I think. Some of these things have seen price movements, I take it as well. Hamster coins up. <laughs> that was one where Representative Sherman came out and said, 
you know, I didn't think this was real. I just made it up as a joke. And then I looked into it and turned out it is in fact real. Right. So there's a lesson in that for them. Right. I mean, cause it is, it's so easy to spin it up. You do not need anybody or approval. It's just a word. You can make up your hamster coin in a spot. Right? So of course <laughs> there's going to be a hamster coin if you mention it. Yeah. There's a lot of fun there. Generally, like, you know, you had you know, Rashida Talib. She sounds like she was, if not as kind of like as cantankerous and, and quick to stir up things as Sherman, she did sound like she was probably more on the critical side, particularly when it comes to uh, energy issues. Where did that conversation go? Yeah, so Representative Clay had some, you know, I think some fairly real concerns about the environmental impact of cryptocurrencies and in particular crypto mining. And she cited you know, the University of Cambridge's data on how much energy is used by, for example, Bitcoin mining. And I know some of these numbers are in dispute by the cryptocurrency industry itself. And, you know, Bitcoiners in particular say that Bitcoin mining is becoming more environmentally every year. But at least at the moment, the concerns are, I think, very real. She pointed to the fact that you have, you know, once shuttered power plants that run on coal and I think gas that are coming back to life purely to run crypto miners and not for, you know, any other purpose. And she asked about possible solutions to that. And one of the responses was, well, you know, other consensus mechanisms exist. But in the meantime, I think this is a conversation we're going to hear a lot more of, especially as you know, current presidential administration, Joe Biden's administration, starts really tamping down on these environmental concerns, right? Just yesterday, President Biden signed an executive order trying to make the U.S. carbon neutral within a couple of decades. If crypto mining is a huge industry in the U.S. and it sticks to old power plants that run on coal and gas and perhaps haven't been updated with you know, relatively newer efforts to try and make them more carbon neutral or at least more environmentally friendly, then I imagine they're going to become a pretty popular target for lawmakers who want to say, hey, you know, look at this industry that's wasting power and you know, generating CO2 and methane and all these other byproducts. Yeah, listening to this, Nick, it's, you know, I'm always struck by how the conversation is sort of fraught on both sides, right? I mean, it, it seems to me that like Bitcoiners who argue there is no carbon footprint in Bitcoin have their head in the sand. They're just ignoring the reality that it is truly got not only high levels of consumption, but just as importantly, uh, a lot of that is coming from fossil fuels. And on the other side, you've got these critics who just focus on that consumption part and, and do nothing to recognize that the reality is Bitcoin's not going away. And so how are we going to deal with this? And the reality is also that Bitcoin is interested in renewable energy as a way to save money. So what I'd love to see happen is that there is a rich conversation between the community and the policymaking bodies to try to figure out how, in fact, these systems can come together in the interests of everybody. That's just my two cents on this. So, Nick, it was really interesting that even though they did have uh, Brian Brooks, who, of course, very recently became the CEO of Bitfury, and I, I actually don't even know the timing of this. Maybe he was asked when he was still at Binance, but it seems to me they, they knew he was at a, a mining company. There really weren't questions about mining, and this was a topic that just was kind of outscoped you know, from the conversation. So it seems to me that what they were really focusing on, and I think AOC's question was kind of emblematic of what they were trying to understand, was the infrastructure. Like, how can these new innovations... And if so, you know, can they rather? And if so, how can they create a new financial system? Uh, and what is it that, that what's additive and what is it that might be challenging about that? But it really wasn't about the energy thing at all, even though, you know, they could have done that apart from, I think, Representative Talib's, you know, sort of uh, light touch kind of question. Was that your sense? And do you think that was deliberate? 
Yeah, I don't know if it was deliberate, but there definitely was a heavy emphasis on the infrastructure and kind of protection details that we talked about earlier. There was a very, very brief bit on the environmental concerns, and it was really just kind of, you know, Representative Fleep explained what her concerns were, asked about alternative consensus mechanisms or other solutions, and then we moved on. The hearing moved on to next lawmaker, and, you know, that was really it. Certainly could benefit from a longer dedicated either question and answer session or his own dedicated hearing. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely a conversation that I think all stakeholders should be having more and hopefully find a productive middle ground between you know, earning the world and killing the crypto industry. Well, even if they weren't touching on those topics, Nick, it did seem like quite a lot was covered. It was interesting to watch and your coverage was excellent, but you haven't stopped yet, right? We have a, a hearing next week. What's that one all about? Yeah, that's right. The Senate Banking Committee will be talking about stablecoins next Tuesday. And we haven't gotten a full witness list yet. So far, we just know that Alexis Goldstein of the Open Markets Institute and a uh, professor, his name I'm blanking on, uh, will be speaking. I don't think any crypto industry representatives have been named yet, but I have to imagine that if we're talking about stablecoins, then there should be at least you know one or two stablecoin issuers probably present to speak directly about what it is they're doing. But yeah, that'll be kicking off next Tuesday, and then we'll probably have quite a few hearings next year. Okay, well, we will definitely be staying tuned. Certainly the best thing to keep your finger on the pulse of people. Read Nick's State of Crypto uh, weekly newsletter, an excellent read on all this sort of stuff, but also the ongoing coverage from him and the rest of his team on Coindesk. Uh, Thank you, Sheila, once again for joining us. Always fun. Thank you, Nick. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Come back again next week for uh, another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Coindesk's Nick Day. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>